Welcome back to the Pacific Century and welcome to 2022, the first broadcast of the new year. I'm Misha Oslin and the Pacific Century, as you may remember from 2021, is a podcast about Asia, America, China, and the fate of the 21st century. I am particularly happy to kick off 2022 with a special podcast of predictions for the year. And there are no better people than my two guests to join me today to talk about what we may be facing in the Indo-Pacific in 2022. And that is Dr. Dan Twining, and Ambassador Derek Mitchell. Um, I'm just going to go in order of uh, job seniority. So I'm going to start with Dan. Dan Twining uh, heads up the International Republican Institute, where he joined as president in 2017. Uh, Dan served as a counselor to the president and director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund before that. He also served as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as the foreign policy advisor to Senator John McCain, also as a staff member of the U.S. Trade Representative and has concentrated, as is appropriate for this podcast, on Asia for most of his career. Uh, we are also joined by Ambassador Derek Mitchell. Uh, Derek is the president of the National Democratic Institute, where he became president in September of 2018. From 2012 to 2016, Derek was the U.S. ambassador to the Republic of the Union of Myanmar, also known as Burma. And in that position, he was America's first ambassador in the country in 22 years. Like Dan, he also has a number of other positions in U.S. government that he's held. Uh, he was the principal deputy assistant secretary of defense for Asia and Pacific security affairs. And he was also six months as the acting assistant secretary. And way back when uh, most of our listening audience were just toddlers, he was the principal author of the Department of Defense's 1998 East Asia Strategy Report. So to the president of the International Republican Institute, Dan Twining, the president of the National Democratic Institute. Derek Mitchell, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thank you very much. Thanks. So, guys, um, obviously, we, we know each other, and, and being in D.C., we've all known each other for a long time. Um, but you have new, new roles and, and really important uh, and exciting roles, but possibly roles that folks don't quite know uh, as much about. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the organizations that you head up, what they do, and, and more specifically, what they do in Asia? And Derek, why don't, why don't we start with you? Can you tell us what is the National Democratic Institute? What do you guys do? Well, Misha, thanks again for, for the opportunity here. Uh, put simply, and I, I agree with you that many people do not know about NDI or IRI and what we do, but we've been around for four decades, uh, established during the early years of the Reagan administration, along with the U.S. Congress and Democrats in the U.S. Congress as partners, um, to help support those around the world who are seeking to build democracy in their countries. That means helping them get their start in terms of building the democratic institutions, political parties, parliaments, um, you know, election systems, as well as the processes. Uh, of, of, uh, of democracy. And it goes beyond elections. People know us, you know, probably most famously for the election observation missions that go to countries overseas. But it really is about building up, as I say, institutions, uh, processes, and ultimately a democratic culture in societies that, that are going through transitions, that are saying we need help, that it's not necessarily natural for countries to understand what it means to be a democratic uh, country and go through democratic transitions. So what we do is not simply export the American model, which is an often myth about what we do. We just take America and 
implanted overseas, there are many models of democracy, parliamentary democracies around the world. And we try and take the experiences of countries in one place and share it with others and build a network of practitioners that can share experiences, share lessons learned, and try to be better small d Democrats everywhere in solidarity with one another, because democracy is inevitably a work in progress. No one has ever done. Uh, it is every generation must be fighting for it as we find ourselves in a similar situation. And so we as NDI and IRI, uh, I'll let Dan speak to them, but we, we seek to develop those networks and to share democratic experiences so our societies are stronger and we are resilient to the autocratic uh, movements that remain out there. So, and before we turn to Dan to hear about IRI, what uh, do you do in Asia specifically? I mean, what is is that a, a big part of your portfolio, a small one, a growing one? And then what are some of the things that you do in Asia? And then I'm, I'm going to ask Dan the same questions. Well, we've been in Asia since the 1980s. I mean, we cut our teeth on the Philippines early in the sort of um, uh, late Marcos or post-Marcos days. Um, when they had a transition there, we worked with Taiwan during the days the DPP was the so-called Dongwai. Um, we've worked in, I, when I was at NDI in the 90s, um, before I was in government, um, I worked in Thailand, Cambodia, in Indonesia. Um, so we right now we're in, I can't give you the number of countries, but we're, we're in many different places doing many different types of things, depending on the context. We have to work offshore in many places now. In Burma, we had maybe our largest program until the coup, the largest program in Asia, but we're working offshore with civil society, Hong Kong. We actually had an office in Hong Kong that was known. We were above board. We don't work, you know, everything is public. Uh, but now, of course, we can't work in Hong Kong. Um, we have an office now, both IRI and NDI, in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. But in Nepal, we work in Malaysia, we work with Indonesia. So it really is a whole host of places, both in partnership um, to work in other places around the, the region, but also uh, together, um, you know, in solidarity to protect the values that we hold dear and, and do so with women, young people, and others who are traditionally marginalized, as well as the traditional um, institutions that one would expect. Mm-hmm. Dan, uh, is IRI a different beast or, or uh, do you do largely the same things? So, Misha, we do similar things. Uh, one reason, in case there's confusion, of why there is a National Democratic Institute and a National Republican Institute is because when Republicans and Democrats together in the Reagan administration and the U.S. Congress set up the National Endowment for Democracy 39 years ago, the question was, well, what does that look like? And the answer is, you know, governments cannot help democracy develop. They cannot nurture civil society, et cetera, et cetera. That, that work is actually done by civil society groups like us. Uh, but the question is, what is democracy? What are pillars of democracy when they were founding the NED? And uh, their short answer in 1983 was uh, political parties, business, and labor, that those are core stakeholders in a system of economic and political freedom that secures individual liberty and is responsive to citizens. So the NED family includes uh, a Republican Institute, IRI, a Democratic Party Institute, NDI, uh, a business institute called the Center for National Private Enterprise that promotes free markets and anti-corruption, and the Solidarity Center. Center, which supports worker rights, uh, labor unions, that sort of thing. Uh, We are working, I believe, in some 23 or so Asian countries. We have extensive lines of work, uh, not just in big and obvious countries, including those Derek mentioned, uh, but in places like uh, the Maldives, 
uh, okay. in places like uh, actually a number of the Pacific islands where governance issues are front and central due to citizen concerns around corruption, uh, due to a sense, you know, in many countries, I know we're going to talk about it, that democracy has been slipping or autocracy has been resurging. So uh, there's great interest at the very local level in big countries uh, like Burma uh, or Pakistan uh, and in small countries uh, like some of the island nations for more responsive and accountable governance. Uh, and to reemphasize something, Derek, said, this really doesn't have a lot to do with the United States. These are things citizens want in these countries. They don't want to be ruled by corrupt elites. They want their children to have a shot at a better life. They want to have a voice and a vote in their own political future. Uh, and so these are universal propositions. The United States does, I would argue, have a national interest in supporting those aspirations around the world because we know, and I'll just close with this because I know we have a lot to talk about, we know that countries that govern themselves well and justly and humanely uh, are better partners, better allies, better trade and investment uh, partners. Uh, countries that can govern themselves well through citizen responsive governance do not export insecurity, do not invade their neighbors, do not try to take over the South China Sea, uh, do not uh, create the kind of instabilities that we've seen uh, emanating, for instance, from Burma after the coup this year. So um, obviously both of you and, and both of the institutions and the, the NED, the National Endowment for Democracy, I guess, under which you're nested, uh, have a global remit. So is it is it just a is it happenstance? Is it an accident that both uh, institutions are headed up by Asia experts? Or is this a, a conscious shift in terms of looking at where some of our great challenges uh, lie? I think it's just happened to be like this. It was probably a coincidence. Uh, we both um, also went to the University of Virginia, the home of Thomas Jefferson. So I think that also is a uh, is a uh, coincidence. So it's really the Virginia, the Virginia mafia. It has nothing to do with Asia. Okay, it's really the UVA Cavaliers that are really the key here. Well, no, I, I, I hope we're going to get this uh, broadcast on there then. But I'll tell you, Misha, that it, it is encouraging in this way. I want, I, you know, as Asianists, of course, we've always felt, and we, we hear the talking points, the futures in Asia and the 21st century, the history of the 21st century would be written in Asia. And yet senior leadership in government tends to be same Europe hands or, you know, right. hands. And that you're starting to see a little bit more of that drift now to recognize that those who are Asianists also have to have these positions. I, but in this case, it was a coincidence, but I think a, a welcome one because Dan and I knew each other before and we can build on that friendship and partnership to do the work that we do across what seemingly are insurmountable party lines these days, but in this case are things that you know, are fundamental to being American and across, should, and in our case, continue to do cross uh, party division. And Misha, could I just add to that? I yeah, mean, this is something Republicans and Democrats agree on, is that we should support democracy and freedom in the world. There's nothing partisan about that. Actually, America's been doing it for several centuries. Uh, so this is something we can all agree on. Your question about sort of why Asia, why now? You know, more people live under democracy in Asia than any other region of the world. Uh, I think people sometimes get so focused on China, which I know we're going to talk about later, that they think that China is somehow the pace setter politically for its region. And while China is a significant global power, uh, in fact, uh, you know, as long as India remains in the fold uh, as a vibrant and healthy democracy, you have Japan, South Korea, Indonesia, you know, all these countries have internal issues and problems. There is no perfect democracy, as Derek said, and as Thomas Jefferson would have argued. Uh, but in fact, uh, there is more to play for, arguably, in Asia than in any other region of the world. And that includes, of course, the strategic stakes for the United States. Aren't you guys, by the way, aren't you guys supposed to call him Mr. Jefferson? Isn't that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Isn't that, that a tradition? Problem. 
we find Dan some amount of money for calling him Thomas. No, I think <laughs> right. I, I did the same thing. Yeah, you did too. Exactly. Yeah. Well, actually, let me let me pick up Dan on on what you what you just said, um, which is very interesting because uh, the the question and I think um, both of you have have referred to it the the question of the state of democracy. Uh, my colleague at the Hoover Institution, Larry Diamond, uh, who's very involved with with the NED and and other groups, uh, of course, has talked about a democracy deficit, something he's well known for. Um, Dan, you just said that more people live uh, under democracy in in Asia uh, than under autocracy, which by the numbers is true, uh, but numbers only tell part of the story. There's also the the, the strength of the nations under which each live, their influence, their power, their ability, so on and so forth. can you guys talk a little bit before we get to the predictions? Because that's what we're here for. We're here for predictions. But before we get there, can you talk a little bit about the state of democracy in Asia, the health of democracy or the democracy deficit? Some of it's known in Thailand. Others may not be as well known. Uh, Derek, definitely want to ask you about uh, Burma, given that you were ambassador there and the great hopes that we had and where we are today. But let's start at the 30,000 foot level. Is there a democracy deficit in Asia or are we doing pretty well in Asia? So there's a top-down story and a bottom-up story, Misha, and uh, Derek can speak so authoritatively on Burma. Uh, But when we look across the region, we see we do see democratic regression in countries like the Philippines, right? Some slippage in significant nations like India. Uh, But we also see uh, more bottom-up demand, including in very tough places like Burma and Thailand, more bottom-up demand for accountability and responsive politics than I would argue we've almost ever seen. I mean, in Hong Kong, you had 2 million people in the streets until they were crushed by the Chinese Communist Party's security forces uh, over the course of the last year and a half. Uh, You know, Derek and I have both been in these jobs, you know, three, four years. If you had told us when we started these jobs that a quarter of Hong Kong's population would be out protesting for greater freedoms and liberties, uh, if you had told us, you know, any number of developments, we would have said, um, you know, uh, impossible to even imagine that. So there, there is this hunger for greater accountability and citizen responsive politics, even as we have seen uh, strong men, authoritarians uh, use COVID in particular uh, as an excuse to tighten controls over their populations. We've seen that in uh, places like Cambodia, for instance. Uh, we've certainly seen it, uh, again, across the region where uh, illiberal leaders have said, you know, uh, political opposition is some kind of public health menace. And of course, that's not true. I mean, if there's anything you want during a pandemic, it's the ability to hold your government accountable for public policy shortcomings, including on public health. So I would argue that uh, democracy remains a work in progress across the region. In India, it's always a work in progress. Uttar Pradesh is going to have these enormous elections uh, over the next two months. More people are going to vote in Uttar Pradesh than are going to vote in uh, essentially uh, all of Europe this year, looking at the elections ahead. So uh, democracy advances and recedes, but that resurgence of citizen activism is very much there, including, again, in some of the toughest cases like Burma and Thailand. Derek, this this um, uh, surging forward and, and receding, uh, when it recedes, does it recede to a level higher than it was before? Or is it really a, a sort of Manichaean uh, struggle uh, to to ensure that the democratic gains are locked in? I mean, in, in other words, how do you see uh, the region and, and sort of in response to what Dan was saying? I agree with completely with Dan. The demand for democracy, demand for a voice, 
is as strong as ever. And it's not just, you. I mean, we'll get to Burma in a second, I suppose. You can see that in dramatic terms in Burma. You see it in Thailand, you see it in Hong Kong, you see it in Cambodia. You see it anywhere where people's rights are being taken away from them, where they got a taste of freedom, taste of, of this, that they demand it. And people forget before the pandemic, and even during the pandemic, once it was starting to recede a little, it was the year of demonstrations, people going to the streets and demanding that their government be more responsive to them. Some of that happened in democratic societies because those democracies just weren't developed well enough. The institutions were nascent or the democracies were weak or getting weaker. And people felt that they were corrupted and they weren't speaking for them. What they were asking for was not less democracy, but more democracy uh, and better democracy, more responsive, more transparent, more accountable, less corrupt. So the demand is out there, but unfortunately it's under attack. And that's what Dan talks about, so you're, what you're discussing here. And what it also comes down to is that democracy is hard. I mean, this is, you can advance a certain way, but it likely will regress some because people's expectations may be too high for what democracy can deliver in the short term. It demands a lot of people uh, and it doesn't deliver in immediate terms. It looks very messy. So that when you get to the messiness or the corrupt pseudo democracies where they go through an election that's not really representative and then doesn't work for them, people will say, well, look at that. This is not working. And you get demagogues saying, I can do better. Give me the power. You don't need to have all this mess. I'll clean things up and get it back to your nostalgic vision of the way it was that people realize in their heart of hearts was never that great, but somehow is better than what they can see in, in, you know, on their streets, which is chaos. So it does go forward and back, but we have to be resilient and also recognize what we are seeing, which is a tremendous demand out there for better democracy when it's being put under attack uh, by autocratic forces around the world. So if this were a political science seminar, this is probably where we'd start talking about different types of, of democracy, right? Different regimes within democracy. And uh, I, I can't remember if it was Dan or, or Derek, which one of you mentioned, though, there's obviously there's different kinds. There's parliamentary and there's there's um, there's you know, direct elected leaders and indirect. I mean, there's so there's a lot. But but I think we should I'd like to bring that into the conversation as, as we go forward to the predictions. I think we, we have to get to predictions. That's a great way to actually sort of take a tour uh, de horizon, I guess our French friends would say. Uh, and and I want to um, uh, try to focus in on some of the areas where you guys are, are experts. I know both of you are very, uh, very long established hands in Taiwan. So we'll get to Taiwan. Um Dan, for sure, I want to talk to you about the Pacific Islands because it's a very interesting point. You, you talk a lot to the, the military leadership. You talk to Indo-Pacific Command, and they're very focused on these islands and, and the competition. From a security perspective, you're competing in a different way, and I'd like to talk to you about that. But Derek, I'd like to start with you, if I can, with Burma, which was supposed to be the great success story. Uh, and of course, you went out there in, in 2012. Uh, I, I knew you beforehand, and you know when you went out, and everyone was very excited um, for what we thought was going to happen in Burma. Um, let's not recap as much, although cover it as we go forward. What do you predict going forward in Burma in 2022? And through that, maybe you can explain where Burma is today and and, and what went wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you can never defend against is guys with guns. Who you know, the people are now calling 2021 the year of the coup. They had four coups in Africa. There's a coup in, in Asia. And um, some people will wonder what happened on January 6th, what, what that was about. So there is, you, you can't stop, certainly militaries and guys with guns, um, 
uh, typically from from doing what they do. And in Burma, they had a history of this, unfortunately. And um, what was interesting, and it gets to what Dan was saying earlier, what we were just talking about, um, you know, around the election of 2020 in Burma, there were polls taken and people were saying, you know, the young people and the, the liberals there, you know, they're starting to not care so much about democracy. They're a little frustrated by Aung San Suu Kyi's leadership and the NLD was a ruling party. Um, and so, you know, th- this we'll see where this goes. The moment the military took over, then you saw people's real beliefs and they came out and what you're seeing today and over the past year is a really truly in the tragic terms a fight to the death we have people saying we absolutely will not go back we are not going to allow the 50 years of systematic degradation by the military of our proud society to destroy the lives of our and, and our futures of our young people, particularly young people are driving this. Women in the front lines, men in the front lines, all saying, no, not in this generation. You've messed with the wrong generation. Um, so you have the irresistible force and the immovable object in essence. The military is very proud. They have rallied around themselves, it seems. There's some division within, but there's no indication of division uh, that will lead to uh, a, you know internal dissent in the military. So what we're going to see in the coming year, I think, is unfortunately more of the same, more death and destruction, um, and potentially a failed state. And if it isn't already, uh, a massive economic um, disaster and humanitarian disaster with cross-border effects. Uh, unfortunately, I think ASEAN and Southeast Asia have not been able to pick up and to, to rise to the occasion. They're falling back to the lowest common denominator perspective and now led by Cambodia this year and Hun Sen, who is about to go to Burma. And there are fears that he's going to try to get along there in order to stabilize a situation that where both neither side, the military or the people, the opposition, are in the mood for compromise. Um, there was a compromise over the past decade and the people didn't like where that turned out. So it's hard for me to predict anything but more of the same. Um, unless something drastic happens within the military. It has to come from within that that institution. And can I ask you about another uh, and very um, geographically uh, uh, close uh, society that's also had a coup, which is Thailand. Uh, and uh, again, a history of coups in Thailand, and yet also uh, a history of, of democratic elections and, and um, parties, uh, sometimes connected to um, different factions within society, but but still uh, what we would see as at what appeared to be a functioning democracy. What's your prediction for Thailand uh, this year? And, and as you do that, you know, tell us a little bit about where it is today. So Thailand... Um, has this monarchical overlay, which makes it very different. There is uh, very significant political power centered on the monarchy, which is essentially an extra democratic institution, right? So uh, there is that. There is this long history of coups. Uh, I was living in Thailand as a boy when there was a coup uh, with my diplomatic family. Uh, I wrote uh, an op-ed in the Financial Times after a coup in Thailand in 2006, which I think they could have just republished a couple years ago when the last coup happened. I mean, you know, um, 
so there, Thailand is quite unique in that sense. It's also uh, unusual, Misha, as you know, as a scholar of U.S. military alliances in Asia, in that it's a very close U.S. military ally. Now, look at the other close U.S. military allies in the region. Uh, they are quite strong democracies, including, of course, the Philippines, which has had a very strongman leader over the past few years, but which has a long democratic tradition stretching back a century or more. Uh, Thailand's security cooperation with the United States is limited, is constrained by the current nature of its politics. There are limits to our uh, ability to work together the way the U.S. and Japan work together militarily, the U.S. and Korea, the U.S. and Australia, the U.S. and the Philippines. And that is I would argue, to Thailand's disadvantage. Um, so let's see. Uh, they are working on elections in Thailand, and it's very interesting. I was just reading about the ruling party's uh, attempts to change the ballot uh, and the voting process in Thailand in ways that reinforce uh, essentially single-party rule. The last time they had an election, they ended up banning various democratic opposition parties who were proving too popular, right? So uh, I think we need to see things very clearly. And we need to understand, as Derek suggests, that young Thai people want something totally different, which is why a lot of these reform and opening movements, even under military rule, have been led by young people. Uh, in Thailand, very bravely making the Hunger Games sign uh, at their political protests, showing that you know these things don't just live on the screen, but actually uh, come into real life, because young people want to live in a free and open society uh, in Thailand as anywhere. And Dan, are those elections scheduled for this year, or are they at some vague point in the future? Uh, I will. I can tell you because I have my list of Asian elections here in front of me. Uh, those elections are coming up. Let's see. Uh, you'll have to come back to me on that because my okay. list uh, has gone away. Uh, That's right. They are we'll, we'll coming up either this year or next year. And mm -hmm. again, the the essentially the general who led the coup is now uh, the leader of the country. Pranuncha. Yes, and they have turned their political party. They've grown it out of uh, a group of military generals and essentially are looking at ways of gaming the system to stay in power, so, uh, which tells you a lot about, you know, how much they perceive their own popular support, which is not as strong as they would like it to be. Right. So does that, does that then what, how do, how do, before we move to another country, how do both uh, NDI and IRI then reach conclusions about the state of democracy in a country, meaning, you know, we have, for example, Freedom House's rankings and the like. Um, if, for example, um, you uh, determined that the election in, in Thailand, whenever it is to be held, uh, is not free or it's not you know, as you said, you have a you have a change in the rules. You have a political party that is that is essentially, um, if not guaranteed dominance, it's the weight of the the system swings behind it. Is there a point where you say we we don't consider this to be a democratic state, or you just continue working with whomever you can? How do you institutionally sort of deal with what what's coming? And you know, these elections are about to come up. So, how does NDI, how does IRI deal with that, Derek? Well, we're not in the business of judging countries in that way. We don't say, well, this is a democratic country, this is a non-democratic country. We we look at countries and see whether there is a demand for our services, which is, again, to support those who themselves are making a commitment to develop democratic processes in their society. You know, in a place like Thailand, if there's a constitution that is clearly rigged for the military, again, the model, I think, that 
Burma wants to follow. Um, where and what was happening in Hong Kong too, where you basically rigged the system in order to ensure that the dominance will be within the, the ruling regime, military in this case. Then you're sort of tinkering on the edges. Maybe you'd work, and so you wouldn't work with that executive or with that parliament necessarily, unless you saw that there was a germ of something that was poten- had potential to grow in the future into something more democratic. So we go in very, very carefully, examine it carefully, whether there is space and opportunity. Traditionally, we might work with civil society in that case. Um, those who want you know, to keep a flame lit for people to have a voice, even in a system that seemed otherwise to be leaning towards autocratic. And Dan, IRI does the same thing, or, or do you determine this is not a democracy, or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, we're not uh, moral judges. We work with partners around the world, I mean, between NDI and IRI in more than 100 countries that are at all levels of development, mm-hmm. from very closed autocracies, where people want to create some democratic space, to some of the most open and developed democracies, where you still have issues around young people representation or women's empowerment, uh, or just political party uh, collaboration across the transatlantic space, for instance. So the answer is we'll come in and work uh, with partners and, you know, it may be on civic education if they're having their first election. Uh, It may be on how do you do effective parliamentary oversight. It may be on how do you run effective communications out of a prime minister's office. It may be on how do you use public opinion polling to organize political campaigns around citizen priorities rather than personality politics, right? So we do this uh, at all levels of development. And again, it's very much uh, a work in progress, but we're guided by what partners on the ground are looking for in terms of their own aspirations to create uh, more effective and better functioning democracies that are inclusive and just uh, and give people a voice. And we, we do so, if I say, Misha, we do it with humility. I mean, the, the fundamental, we're all fallen democracies. All democracies are striving to be better, to be more democratic. And, you know, the United States has always been striving to realize more perfect union and and have equal representation for people. So we don't go in with that judgmental, but we do want to get a sense of whether there is space and a true commitment to democratic uh, goals. And if so, we can find the space we will work there. I like this theological element you've brought in. We are all fallen democracies. But uh, before we leave Southeast Asia, let me ask you about another U.S. ally, one that's been mentioned, but one that we've had an extremely difficult relationship with over the past several years. And that, of course, is the Philippines. Uh, The Philippines is going to have an election. Uh, Duterte uh, himself will be stepping down. But uh, if if I'm uh, correct, his daughter is going to be running. Um, what do you predict going forward in the Philippines uh, this year? Is it is this a Duterte dynasty that we're seeing? So his daughter is running for vice president, not president. president. Uh, It gets more interesting because the son of Ferdinand Marcos, who's the dictator who fell in 1986, his Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is running and is a leading candidate at the moment. So the Philippines does have this dynastic politics component to it, which is problematic from a democratic perspective as many as we should say as many asian nations do certainly in japan mm-hmm. there's a dynasty uh dynastic element with abe and his father and grandfather you've, you've had it in uh in taiwan of course with uh chiang kai-shek and Zhang jingguo so it's it's not that this is unheard of but but 
just insert that then. So go ahead, please. No, that's right. And Rodrigo Duterte, the outgoing president, is actually uh, running for uh, Senate. So he is going to remain a power uh, in their parliament there. Uh, so let's see. Uh, the Duterte experience was quite interesting because, of course, uh, as Philippine democracy took a step backward during his tenure, the U.S.-Philippine alliance came under quite a lot of pressure. Uh, Duterte did his own form of pivot to China, which really backfired, uh, as you know better than anyone, Mish, as a nascent security expert. And, and more recently, the Philippine government he leads has come back into the embrace of the alliance. So uh, there is some continuity here. The other thing to say about the Philippines, though, is sometimes there's a critique, uh, you know, of American foreign policy that we only support democracy in countries uh, that are somehow adversarial, that in fact, we don't push our allies. And the Philippines is a very interesting case study because in 1986, uh, the Reagan administration, the U.S. Congress really led a push for the dictator to step back after he lost an election. And it was uh, a decisive intervention politically by President Reagan with support from a Democratic Congress uh, to allow Philippines democratic institutions to resurface there. So rather than this argument that somehow U.S. military cooperation stifles political freedom, uh, we have seen in the Philippines and elsewhere that it can really incubate it. Of course, we've also seen that in different ways in Japan and South Korea. South Korea in particular, I was going to raise where the same thing happened in the 80s. I, I was just thinking as you were as you were talking, Dan, I don't know if there's a good book and it would, it would be a great history to write of that moment of democratization in the 1980s when uh, probably all of us, I think we were all in college then uh, to give hint at how old we all are, but we were all in college in the 80s. Uh, in fact, I was in D.C. and remember uh, we watched the the, the Marcos, uh, the the um, the democracy movement and and Marcos fleeing the country on on a little television set in the dorm, you know, and then we were calling up the State Department trying to say, hey, you know, what tell us what's happening because we're interested students. Of course, they ignored us since they had more important things to do. But my point is that it really felt like this was the wave of the future. You saw it in Taiwan, you saw it in South Korea, you saw it uh, in Mongolia. Of course, you had a deepening in in Indonesia. Um, and and yet, when we look at today, there's certainly uh, a, a lot of concerns. Um, is there, uh, Derek? Is there anything you want to add on the the Philippines before we we move on? Because there are there are some other areas to cover. Yeah, no, I think I think Dan covered it. I think it's uh, you know, even though uh, Marcus's son is is leading right now, there's still questions whether he'll he'll hold the line. But um, you know, it, what is interesting there, and what you know, what if you have a society that agrees with a, a liberal leader and finds his human rights violations to be somehow appealing uh, and acceptable? Um, it's it's a huge challenge, and he is, you know, his forces have murdered hundreds, if not thousands, of people with impunity, um, and yet the people still hold him in high esteem overall. Um, you know, so this is a challenge. We'll just have to see if uh, his successor continues that that route. But meanwhile, we we have to maintain a, a solid relationship uh, to keep that democracy at least on track overall. Well, Derek, on the theoretical level, I mean that's an incredibly important point. It's not limited to the Philippines or Asia. Of course, you know one of the er 
cases is is Germany in the 1933, which had an election that elected Hitler. And, and so the whole question of how elections can be turned into vehicles of illiberalism uh, is critical. It's not something we can uh, we can cover here, but I think it's important to, to keep in mind since we have this foreign policy goal of, of extending and deepening and strengthening democracies. And Dan, you raise another really important point, at least for those of us who are all of us, all three of us, I should note, are DC-based. So, you know, for the DC policy wonk community, um, what happens in these countries doesn't stay in these countries in the sense that you you mentioned this affects our security partnerships, our arrangements, our ability to work uh, with nations to keep broader security uh, within the region. It's not just saying, how do we protect the Philippines? It's, you know, what is, what is the inability of the U.S. and the Philippines to cooperate uh, more carefully, let's say, during the Duterte years, uh, mean in terms of our response to what China is doing in Southeast Asia, South China Sea. So two really critical points that that both of you guys uh, have raised. Um, I'd like to cover three more areas before we close out. Um, one that gets almost no attention, one that gets a little bit of attention, and one that gets all the attention. So let's start with the Pacific Islands, uh, really the sort of overlooked story of the Indo-Pacific. And again, I mentioned that when you talk with Indo-Pacific Command uh, and and uh, and Pacific Fleet and the like, they are they are really focused on the competition we have with China amongst these small islands in Oceania uh, and Micronesia and and uh, uh, the 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 like and and you know most of us are just very not very familiar with them but Dan you you raised them and so um, can you tell us what should we be looking for going forward this year there were cases where China tried to lease t- entire countries in the Solomons I think it was a few years ago what what's happening what what do we need to be aware of and why are the Pacific Islands uh, important so Misha a Japanese uh, military officer came to Washington several years ago and told us uh, you may have been uh, among some of his interlocutors that China to project power in the western pacific was pursuing a version of the same strategy that Imperial Japan pursued except that Imperial Japan pursued it by, through war China is using economic and political instruments influence operations corruption of political elites that sort of thing to establish footholds to establish control um you know, IRI and NDI, I think I can speak for both of us, we're quite interested in democracy for the sake of democracy. We think that people in the Pacific Islands should have the same rights to a democratic voice as any other people, irrespective of geography. But we see China defining these issues very strategically. And as you have suggested, in countries like the Solomons, I mean, people have been in the streets protesting uh, against forms of Chinese, essentially neo-imperialism that involves elite corruption, uh, debt trap diplomacy, infrastructure developments gone bad that lead to big spites in national debt, uh, seedy closed-door dealings uh, that produce, as you suggested, kind of island leases or development of military use facilities on sovereign territory of these nations. So the U.S. interest is in a free and open Indo-Pacific. That is a Japanese term that India and Korea and many others have embraced. A free and open Indo-Pacific involves the people of every nation, including in the Pacific Islands, making their own sovereign choices about their political futures and being able to run independent foreign policies. They cannot do that if an autocratic 
Chinese superpower comes in and co-ops or corrupts or cajoles politicians in undemocratic ways to lean in a certain direction. So uh, our interest is in free and open politics in these countries, uh, spotlighting corruption, exposing abuses, so that citizens can hold their leaders accountable and so that political leaders are making the best choices for those countries, not making what's the best choice for Beijing. As you look forward, Dan, in 2022, do you you, uh, feel feel confident about uh, the the Pacific Islands' ability to resist Chinese blandishment? Do you feel confident about the American policy to give them alternatives to Beijing? Or is this going to be a a year in which we see these these small islands come under uh, increasing pressure and not being able to withstand it? So I think many countries, not just in the Pacific Islands, are going to come under increasing pressure. The Chinese are being so aggressive. I mean, they're running very sophisticated influence operations in our own country, uh, in the United States. Uh, You saw, Misha, what they have done in Australia, which is essentially uh, run a trade war. Kurt Campbell, the top Asia advisor to President Biden, said that China was conducting economic warfare against Australia last year because Australian leaders had called for an independent investigation of the origins of COVID. And in return, China issued a, a... essentially a set of demands, not unlike the set of demands that preceded World War I, uh, in which uh, they essentially demanded that uh, Australia stop criticizing China, that uh, the Australian media be controlled to not criticize China, etc., etc., that Australia stop running an independent foreign policy. Uh, No country uh, wants to be subject to those blandishments. But if China can do that to Uh, rich and powerful countries uh, like Australia, imagine what they could do to small nations that don't have uh, the depth of political institutions, that don't have the economic uh, depth. and Which makes it more the more impressive uh, when nations like uh, the Solomons then ultimately turn their back on these deals and and stand up to China. And you're right. And sometimes they're showing the rest of us how to, how, how how it should be done. Uh, although, uh, I think the, uh, the economic warfare against Australia has not gotten nearly enough, uh, attention. I'm not sure as many Americans, uh, understand it as should. Um, and there's a lot, there's obviously a lot more to talk to. Um, but, but I want to cover just a few more places before we, before we run out of time. So Derek, let me turn to you. Let's, let's bring in one of the big, the big boys, one of the big players, uh, in, in, um, the Indo-Pacific, uh, the Indo part of it and, and give your predictions. Uh, does democracy disappear in India in 2022? What's, what's happening? Uh, what's going to happen? Uh, what are you worried about? What is NDI worried about in India, if anything? Well, I'm worried about a lot of things in a lot of places. I am worried about India, uh, in the sense that in the one, one hand, I'm not worried that democracy is going to disappear in India there, as Dan said, it is a very, very complicated organism. There are a lot of different uh, parts of it, and a lot of it is decentralized. Um, And people have a natural affinity and demand for a voice in that country, and will continue to assert that voice. Uh, I am concerned, though, about at the same time having a single leader that has galvanized uh, the government there has been very helpful to the United States in a strategic level to get some things done uh, strategically that were very difficult in the past. When I was working the strategic angle from the Pentagon or from CSIS, the U.S., Japan, India, you know, Entente that we were promoting always fell down on the fact that India couldn't really deliver strongly on its on its side and it hadn't made a, a fundamental judgment to stand with uh, the United States and Japan. It, it now has. And it gets back, and we were just talking about China. China is very helpful in this regard. And it's helpful in, you know, in the ways that we were talking earlier. I mean, it's woken up 
countries around the world uh, to what China truly represents, where in the past there was a question whether a rising China would be a challenge to the international system, whether it would rise peacefully. China, of course, had all its talking points, and it went over a good many people to say, oh, well, let's give them a chance. And of course, you give countries a chance. Nothing wrong with giving them a chance. But looking at their rhetoric, giving their talking points and their actions over the years, it was pretty well clear after a time that they were going to be aggressive and that they were not interested in joining the international system as it was, and that when they got strong enough, they were going to change that system. Um, and now you're seeing countries um, ally with the United States in this cause. Um, now, when it comes to democracy, and so I think you have that you know, working for, in a sense, working for centralization of power in a way in India. But at the same time, mm -hmm. I think, you, you know, and it worries me, because if you have uh, the largest uh, democracy in the world, starting to regress in its values, starting not to model the type of transparent, accountable, representative governance that you know President Biden says is a defining challenge, defining issue uh, right now in the world. That that matters. That if they start to model illiberal, um, you know, uh, values of suppressing free speech or the media or civil society. Um, then that comes at the expense of our ability to promote it elsewhere. It will look like we're being hypocrites. Um, so on the one hand, I think it's a, a strategically understand why we need a really strong relationship with India, and that's helped by a centralized authority. On the other hand, that um, the disintegrate or the devolution of democratic values there at the center does worry me, um, and I really do hope that there is a counter counterwave to um, to demonstrate the resilience of countries that undergo a little bit of backsliding. Dan, you know you know India very well. What's your take? What do you, what do you foresee uh, for this year? So uh, I'm I'm all, I'm I remain an optimist about India. Uh, you know I do think India has been buffeted by trends other democracies have been buffeted by. That includes. Uh, social media uh, forms of disinformation and uh, manipulation that can amplify extremist voices. Uh, that also includes, frankly, a very charismatic leader who is a very effective communicator, including on social media. Uh, you have seen trends, sort of ethno-majoritarian trends that are not unique to India, uh, a sort of, uh, uh, you know, a form of majoritarian democracy operating there recently of a kind we see in, frankly, other countries. Uh, but uh, a couple things about India. One is that the political opposition remains uh, atomized, disunited, fractured. The leading uh, opposition party, the Congress party, is not in strong shape. And so you can't beat something with nothing, right? Modi is genuinely popular. Uh, the BJP genuinely has national support. So it's not as if there is some kind of democratic... There's not. It, it's not as if... Uh, democratic outcomes are not being produced. We worry about illiberalism. We worry about shrinking space for free expression, for uh, critical journalists, uh, that sort of thing. But the other thing about India is there are always elections. Uttar Pradesh is having these big state elections. There are other state elections. So this devolution of power really matters in India as in the United States. It really matters in the United States who your governor is, right? Who your mayor is, who controls the Congress, separate from who the president of the United States is. And the same thing is true in India and in many other uh, federal systems. So uh, let's keep our eye on India, but let's also understand that uh, Indians uh, cherish their democracy. They are one of Asia's 
uh, most successful democracies historically, uh, one of Asia's oldest democracies. And so uh, hopefully uh, things will continue to develop in that country in ways that enable our partnership. And we should note, you've mentioned Uttar Pradesh a few times. Uh, the population is 200 million people. That's just one state uh, in India. And so you're right, it's, it's more than um, uh, all of Europe voting. So when, when India holds elections, it's, it's no small feat, and they often take months. Um, let's, let's wind up by, by uh, going to where we usually start off with. Um, no one predicts, anticipates, thinks in any way that that China, the People's Republic of China, is going to democratize in 2022. Um, but both of you are, are also security experts in addition to now being democracy experts. Um, maybe just in, instead of asking you about what you think about democracy in China, um, I'd like to get your, your predictions on this year in China, this year in U.S.-China relations. Um, there's going to be a party congress uh, this year. It's going to be a huge event. Um, it is going to be clearly the third term for Xi Jinping, uh, unless something unforeseen happens, uh, which is possible. Um, there is a relatively new, although now about a quarter down, a relatively new U.S. administration. Um, predictions for 2022 in China and with China-U.S. What do you guys say? I don't think there's going to be much... Um different than what we've seen, probably uh, extending more of the same could be accelerated. As you say, the, the 20th Party Congress is um, is a major event for the CCP. So that mitigates something. The Olympics as well is a bit of a right. milestone as well in February, uh, which will, you know, at least for the next month or so, month and a half, will mitigate any any dramatic action. But you see, we, we see Xi Jinping for who he is. We know um, we can see the whole society organize itself around him. Um, and that fundamentally runs against a, a constructive U.S. relationship. The Chinese have just taken off the mask. They don't. They have the same talking points generally, but overall, they don't. You know, they don't mind showing an illiberal face. They're proud of it, and they're not just holding it to their own territory, but they're exporting it. And that's one of the biggest challenges we face: is that that illiberalism in a box that they are exporting everywhere in the world, um, and, and through you know through cyber methods through their you know digital technologies um and through their example and try to tout their example now um you know the united states i think will continue to do what it's doing as i mentioned um we are getting benefit from the fact that xi jinping and the, the ccp are taking off the mask so now countries see that this that china does not care about its sovereignty does not care about its well-being and that in order to protect itself against this large economic behemoth um, and increasingly military political behemoth, they need to partner with others. And so Japan, Korea has now made a choice. Uh, Australia has, has woken from a slumber. They were really leaders in this. Um, and, you know, even as countries like Lithuania and Eastern Europe, small countries have decided they're going to stand up to it because they're, they're standing up for their own sovereignty. And that's what, that's the difference between us and them is that we actually care about other countries as, as arrogant as the United States can get. Um, and we have power. We sometimes throw around that power to protect our interests. We care about allies or we traditionally have, I think the Biden administration has gone back to those fundamentals to shore up alliances, shore up partnerships, find new ones, bringing together European partners into this and to demonstrate to China that what it's doing is coming against its own interest. So, you know, I've studied classical Chinese strategy, and this is so completely 
contrary to fundamental classical Chinese strategy where you try to divide alliances. They, through their actions, are uniting against themselves. So that plus their undermining of their own, the, the, the fundamentals of their economic miracle, so-called, uh, make me wonder over time how sustainable uh, China's rise is, but even its failure, even its problems can be destabilizing in a problem for the relationship and for all of us, and certainly for Taiwan and for those in the periphery in Asia. So we, I think we're going to continue the U.S. to have a fraught relationship with China, try and find areas of cooperation, but fundamental competition, and then um, try to create some resilience and deterrence from China making the wrong decision in their region. Dan, predictions for 2022, war over Taiwan, war in the South China Sea, coup against Xi Jinping. What, what do you what, take out the crystal ball? What do you see with China? I agree with Derek. Uh, those are smart comments. Um, Xi Jinping is taking acute political risks. Uh, he has concentrated power, not simply around the party, which leaders since Mao have done, but really around himself, which no leader since Mao has done. Uh, arguably China's great economic development success over the past 40 years, China's economic miracle was a product of several things. One is its openness to the world, to trade and investment, right? He's closing that off. China is, Xi Jinping is attempting to decouple the Chinese economy from the American economy, <laughs> more aggressively than America is trying to decouple from China, uh, favoring domestic firms, punishing Chinese companies that list in foreign markets, uh, bringing down, cutting down to size China's greatest entrepreneurs, uh, Alibaba, Didi, etc. So uh, the supremacy of the party uh, is more important to him than China's continued uh, economic growth. And he is concentrating power in ways that mag risk magnifying strategic mistakes, including the possibility of a Chinese attack on Taiwan. That would be a catastrophic and historic error. But if there's only one man making the decision, guess what? Individuals, social science shows, make often bad decisions when uh, there are not teams around them to tell them when they may be making a bad judgment, all right? When there are not institutions around them to check and balance their unmitigated power. He risks making a set of catastrophic uh, decisions that could take China in exactly the wrong direction. Uh, so let's see, let's hope that doesn't happen uh, this year. Uh, a couple of the big investment banks have actually predicted that the U.S. economy will grow faster than the Chinese economy this year. That hasn't happened in decades, right? So China's, uh, China's slowing down. The nature of its economy is changing. And uh, that is going to impact uh, the nature of China's political development. Final thought, uh, Misha, you know this, that you know uh, nations like South Korea, societies like Taiwan, uh, were not democracies when they started out as the original Asian developmental tigers, right? They had growth trajectories like China, but what changed is as they developed a middle class, that middle class demanded political rights and a political voice, not simply continued prosperity. You've already seen that happening in China, in Hong Kong, the richest part of China, where people demanded political rights. Uh, I think ultimately you're going to see that happen more broadly, just as it happened in other Asian countries, that China's development story is not as unique as we think it. And uh, the Chinese economic miracle has its natural limits, uh, which is that it's never going to graduate to becoming a high-income co economy like South Korea or Japan without some political liberalization. I don't think that'll happen in 2022, sadly. Well, 
it is it i don't think we've had such a um broad geographic historical um political science uh oriented discussion that i can remember on on the show and you guys have really just done an incredible job covering uh, the Indo-Pacific. We didn't talk about all of it. Uh, we didn't get to talk about Taiwan. We didn't talk about some of the more established democracies, really, uh, Japan and and um, and South Korea. Um, but what you did do is shine light on a lot of places that don't get nearly enough attention in, in the U.S. and Washington, and also talked about places that get sometimes too much attention. And, and I, I thought your um, your comments, your insights were just really fantastic. It uh, it, it clearly shows why both of you are in the positions that you have and doing the important work uh, that you're doing. Uh, and I think that it'll be great to, to have you on again uh, in the future, maybe as a, a, a wrap up to 2022 or opening of 2023 to, to see how NDI and IRI did uh, during the year and, and what you thought were your great achievements and, and areas again, where, where we have to pay attention. So um, Ambassador Derek Mitchell of the National Democratic Institute, Dr. Dan Twining of the International Republican Institute. Thank you for taking time to talk to us about the Indo-Pacific, and thanks for joining the Pacific Century. Thank you, Misha. Thanks. Enjoyed it. Thanks very much. So uh, on behalf of the Pacific Century, this is Misha Oslin. Thank you for joining, and we will hear you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.